Namaste everybody and uh, welcome to Sangam Talks. So the topic is the Aryan debate, getting serious about it. It's time we got serious because now you can see people like Romila Thapar and all that uh, rearing their heads again. And uh, so naturally you need to get this also as a uh, the facts out there in the mainstream for the benefit of the people. So um, uh, a brief of this talk. So the Vedas, they do contain historical data and this was acknowledged by everybody but interpreted within an invasionist framework, unfortunately. So recent and very detailed reinterpretation by Shrikant ji describing middle and late phases of the Aryan emigration from India. It's his factual, you know, full uh, kind of a summary of this and research has still remained unanswered from that side who supports the Aryan migration or Aryan invasion theory. And also, unfortunately, his research and scholarship remains largely unknown, even amongst the general public. So Indian announcements refutating the Aryan invasion theory, unfortunately, have remained in their echo chambers and not made a dent also in the international consensus. Very unfortunate. And we are trying to remove that. We need all your support. And with emerging acceptance by Indo-Europeanists that their much-touted Yamnaya homeland in Ukraine and Russia is only a secondary homeland. They have accepted this. Uh, the time is right now for a breakthrough in the Aryan debate by our side. So our speaker today, Shikan Gangadhar Talagiriji, he's a BCom, D-Lit Honours, and he has written four major books from 1993 right in 2019 on the Aryan problem or the Aryan invasion theory versus the out of India theory debate. And after Shrikanji's presentation, we'll have the very famous Dr. Conrad Elst also joining in. He's a Belgian Indologist with a master's in Indology, Sinology and Philosophy and author of major books on the AIT versus the OIT debate. Getting serious. The thing is, we who are doing research in this have been serious all these years. And actually, the fact is that the OIT has been completely established and the AIT has been completely demolished. But when you see the circumstances around you, it seems the opposite. So what we have to be serious about now is to put forward the OIT case in such a way that people come to how to acknowledge it. And how can you do that? I mean, as I always say, we cannot mesmerize people that from now on, you will believe in this OIT and not believe in the AIT. The only thing that can happen is when there is a debate. Because we have shown that the OIT completely answers all the linguistic, archaeological and textual aspects. Whereas the AIT is demolished on, in all those uh, fields. And genetics also, the measly and uh, flimsy evidence that they put forward, the argument. They have also been completely demolished again and again. So the point is that as long as they don't acknowledge it and they hold all the reins of media, academic and other uh, power, then the, we are just banging ahead against the wall. The only way in which we can move forward and you know, whenever any new thing comes forward, new evidence for us, for the AOIT, we present it. I have been constantly writing blogs, bringing up new points. Then when someone raises some objection to what we have already written, then also I write blogs and, you know, answer them fully. 
if they have actually managed to point out some fault of mine i correct it and thank them for it but if their arguments are objections are wrong i show why they are wrong and uh, so we can keep on presenting and correcting ourselves and the ait people just don't respond so we can keep on doing our work but until the there is a debate you know people will still keep saying they are the victors because they just run away from the debate so the only thing we have to get serious about is having a debate because we can answer all the points they can't answer any of our points like some of the points that i'll be presenting today linguistic points and all they are unanswerable and they are facts they are not you know my uh, subjective opinions or uh, just guess work or just believe it believe take it from me believe it on uh, take it on faith it's not like that there are facts which no one can deny and even the implications of those facts are so clear that no one can really point out factually they can just say oh i don't want to believe you you're just a bank employee you you're you're not a professor or no international journal which are all controlled by those people so why will they publish our articles so in fact they should publish articles taking our pieces and our uh, evidence and arguments and disproving it but they are not doing that so that is the major problem i mean we are serious it depends on when the debate becomes serious so i will what i will do today is i will point out some of the impediments of course the opposition people are the main impediment the ait supporters and others and the anti hindu element who treat this as a hindu issue and they feel that those who are talking about uh, against the aryan invasion theory are basically hindu minded i am hindu minded i will not deny it. but if you read many of my blogs i criticize and condemn even things which hindus would consider very sacred because wherever criticism has to be done i do it so it is not a question of that so what is required now is just a debate and so i will be pointing out first what is it apart from those direct open enemies what are the other things which are constraining us and uh, secondly then i will just give a short summary of the archaeological and linguistic evidence which no one has been able to refute and the first thing we have to do is that people on our own side refuse to accept that there is an issue they say oh aryan invasion theory has been already disproved and so there is nothing to discuss so they once you say that then everything is at an end so i think i'll uh, present that uh, powerpoint see uh, this whole debate has landed in an impasse because people on our own side refuse to consider the out of india theory they think that there is an aryan invasion theory let us disprove it but they don't realize that you cannot disprove it until you present an out of india theory against it and all the scholars are concentrating on disproving the aryan invasion theory now this battle between the aryan invasion theory and the anti aryan ait people without the oit has landed in an impasse because both of them are governed by certain intransigent attitudes for example the supporters of the theory insist that their theory is final and refuse to examine as i said they refuse to enter into a debate they simply say you are this you are that they 
scholar politics or academic status and other silly things like that and the other from our side there are people who say there is no case at all why waste time on something which does not exist or no sense in flogging a dead horse you know this particular phrase was there in a comment immediately when conrad announced on twitter that this program was going to take place in a sense it is true it is a dead horse but actually it is also a living horse until people acknowledge that it is dead so that is what the problem is all about and the main problem is why is it because the anti aryan invasion theory side that is the hindu side let us say in short they think that only by showing that the rigveda goes back to beyond 2000 bc because you know according to the theory the aryans entered india after 2000 bc so just by showing taking the dates back and secondly by showing that the vedic people are identical with the harappan people or connected with them and not different from them and so their roots go back deep into the soil just by these two methods they think that without resorting to an out of india theory the aryan invasion theory automatically stands disproved now there are two groups among them the first group is only concerned with showing that you know these people said aryans were nomads they started by saying that aryans came and civilized india but once the harappan civilization was discovered they changed it they said the aryan invaders were nomads and the local people were had a very high civilization which was destroyed by the invading aryans so this particular group of people hindus they are only concerned that our vedic culture is being considered a nomadic primitive sort of culture and they want to connect it with the harappan period they have no objection to the aryan invasion theory as such so they are willing to say aryans may have come to india but that was before the harappan period the harappan people were aryans before that they may have come from outside so they are indifferent to this debate the second group totally regrets the idea of aryan immigration and and this is the crucial point they don't realize that this whole thing is not about architectural archaeological sites or about what books say or uh, about genetics and things it is about language it is only about language which is why it is a ling- purely linguistic issue before the linguist brought up this aryan theory no one had even suspected all this but these hindus reject the idea they say uh, how can you say that some indian languages of north india are related to european languages but not related to the languages of south india that is the way they look at it now this is a very weird way of looking because see now if the people in in guyana you know in south america there are so many hindus who left who taken their 200 years ago or whatever and they have now stayed there for generations and generations and many of them went from up and bihar so when we examine their history we will say they went from up and bihar so obviously they are very close to the people of up and bihar then suppose some nationalist says you mean to say that up bihar people are closer to these goyana people than they are to people from maharashtra that is against our national unity which is very foolish because see it is a fact that they went from up bihar now if you have some relatives staying in america since generation they will still be your relatives they will you are still connected with them by blood it doesn't mean you are cut off from other indians who are all still living in india 
but that is the foolish way in which people oppose this they want to say that there is no distinction between aryan and dravidian languages because then automatically they feel that it divides india which is a wrong uh so what i want to first say is that you should recognize that there is such a thing as an aryan or indo european language family which is distinct from the dravidian languages of the south or the austric languages of certain eastern states like odisha jharkhand etc so today first i will concentrate on this because if you don't know what you are arguing about there is no sense in arguing what we are arguing about is the indo european languages not about people not about genes and uh, dna about these languages whether they came to india or they went out from india that is the discussion so let us realize that there is such a thing as an indo european language family and we are discussing the history of that language family now the fact is that there are 12 groups branches of indo european languages spread out from india to all the way to western europe and of course in poland time colonial times they have spread out all over the world so that the americas australia and everything now they are also indo european language speaking but basically it is from india to western europe now all these languages are related to each other that is the first fact second fact is that they were if they are related to each other and they are spread out over such a big area originally they must have been close together to each other in one particular area so the whole question is which is that area so that is what the discussion is about so first let us recognize whether there is an indo european language family or not distinct from dravidian so this is a fact and uh, there are similarities between the indo aryan branch and the dravidian and uh, the european branches of indo european languages and dravidian is not related so i will give some examples see languages if you tell, show them show these objectors you know people who refuse to accept this idea of indo european languages if you show them similarities between sanskrit and english or latin or greek they say oh people always borrow words so what was happened was that india had a very high civilization in ancient times those people spread all over the world and all the other people were influenced by them and they borrowed words from them so it's not that their languages are related to us it's just that they borrowed words from us so we will show that it is not a question of borrowed words it is a question of linguistic relationship between the languages so next i'll give some examples of words to show what is this is now take these relation words see i have given in all these languages look at the screen sanskrit english persian tokharian b old slavonic that is old russian latin old irish see all the words for father mother brother sister son and daughter see the persian word pidar mother biradar khasar hunu and in avastan hunu is in the avastan and dukhtar they are using urdu you will realize they are, there is one kashmiri terrorist orga, lady organ female organization called dukhtare millat or something dukhtar hane millat or something like that i think so you see those these persian words are used in india we are familiar with them because they are used in urdu and in hindi films and all that and english we all know we are speaking in english now so you just see the words and you see how they are all connected 
and you if you compare tamil you will see how different the words are tande tai annan tambi atkal tangi pen and pen these are relation words i am giving and uh, these are the basic ones i am giving you even when you go ahead to son in law uncle aunt you find all these connections or take the words for three now i want everyone to just look at this screen see the words for three in all the indoor major indo aryan languages of india see them in the iranian languages see them in all the other indo european languages outside india you see this thread all the you can immediately even a child will say that all these are related to each other all these words three 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 to three like that and you look at dravidian words in our own country tamil is moonru malayalam is moonu telugu is moodu kannada is mooru tulu is mooji the gond language is moon toda is mood kodagu is moodu brahit is moosi you see that moo 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 which gets repeating in all these then there are third family there is a third family of languages in india that is the austric in the santali for example the word for three is pa paya or pa and it is related you see it is not connected with the moo words or the three words the austric languages are related to cambodian and vietnamese languages and in vietnamese the word for three is ba so pa ba you see the connection there so this is so clear now what happens is that i have given examples of relation words and number words which clearly show the relationship between all these different indo european languages and a complete difference from the dravidian languages but this is very strong evidence if you see almost all the words you can make out the connection but it is not clinching evidence why because if you see now these words can be borrowed that is why i want to show this distinction between words which can be borrowed and which cannot be borrowed now you can when we are speaking in our indian languages today we use words like mummy daddy uncle auntie brother sister very freely then we also use numbers if someone wants to say he say uh, 4526 rupees ho gaya uska kimmat uska dam means they'll be using english numerals very especially if they studied in english they be more used to using them and they'll use those numbers even when talking in indian languages so while this shows the relationship it is not clinching evidence that they are related these words could be borrowed by a stretch of imagination but now we will see certain words which can never be borrowed their personal pronouns and the fundamental tense forms of the basic verb to be so first we will see the personal pronouns now as i showed the words for three now look at the words for second person singular personal pronoun in all the indo european languages to 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 it goes on through that full list if you go to do the varieties of that and look at tamil the dravidian languages ni 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 nu ni like that so you see there are two different groups of words one is the indo european word and second is the dravidian word now we already saw that in the case of numbers and relations but you know numbers and relations can be borrowed but i defy anyone in this who is listening to me right now each of them must be knowing at least two languages right english hindi maybe their mother tongue 
I defy them to speak a whole paragraph normally in their own language using English uh, personal pronouns rather than their own language pronouns. Or speak in English using the personal pronouns of their own language. You cannot, you cannot uh, transfer these words from one language to another very easily. Now see the words for am, art, and is. Means I am, thou art, he, she, it is. Now in Sanskrit it is asmi, asi, asti. Look at Avestan, ahmi, ahi, asti. You know H in Sanskrit becomes H in Avestan. Look at Greek. Greek of Homer of the Iliad and Odyssey. It is N E S T S T. You see Hittite, which is the oldest language in West Asia, and very it has become very different from other languages. But see, these words are not changed. It is H M I S T S E. See Russian and uh, Lithuanian. What is in Sanskrit? H M I S T S T has become H M I S T S T. Only O has become A. So these are like dialects of one language. Whereas compared to Dravidian languages, Irukiran, Irukirai, Irukiran, Irukirai, Irukirdis, it's uh, there. You can see it on the screen. All these words, they have no connection with these words at all. See what is there in the modern uh, languages of North India. See in Marathi, it is me ahe, tu ahe, to ahe. In Konkani, it is how asta, tu asta, to asta. In Hindi, it is me hu, tu hai, wo hai, and so on. So you see, for example, in Marathi, the first and third person word is same. Second person word is different. In Hindi, the and in Gujarati, the second and third person words are same, and first person is different. In Bengali, Hindi, and Punjabi, all three are different from each other. And in Konkani, all three are same. So you see, not only are the words different, but even the semantic meanings are different. So much changes have taken place. Taken place. Does it mean these languages are not related to Sanskrit? They are because you know you can trace the how these words got derived from Sanskrit words, but you can't trace the Tamil, Malayalam, Telugu words from Sanskrit words. So you can borrow relation words and number words, but you cannot borrow personal pronouns or the fundamental tense forms of the basic verb to be. These prove that there is such a thing as Indo-European languages. There is such a thing as Dravidian languages. They are two different. The only question before us is, where, where did the Indo-European languages originate? So we have to accept the following fact that these twelve branches are indeed actually related branches of one language family, Indo-European, and their ancestors must have been uh, ancestral forms of these languages. Like we have father, grandfather, grandmother. Like these languages also keep changing and they split and uh, this thing. So those ancestral forms must have been spoken in one area. They can't be that automatically Irish came into being in Ireland and Sanskrit came into being in India. They must have been in one place and then separated and spread out. So either the Indo-European languages of Europe went out from India. Or the Indo-European languages of India came from Europe or somewhere outside. You cannot have a third option. You can't say no, no. Let's not. Maybe they were always there and we were always there. These languages, I mean, not the people. Maybe those languages were always there. Our languages were always in North India. There is no connection between them. You can't say that. There is no third option. So you have, if you want to refute the Aryan invasion theory, you have to show 
that if the languages did not come from there to here they definitely went from here to there so if you say oh i'm not bothered about oit i will just show how old our sanskrit culture is vedic culture is and that will automatically disprove the ait that is not going to happen that is a myopic attitude so there are basically and uh, why is our task very difficult i would like to explain there are three elements for this the pontic caspian steppes you know they all talk about the steppes aryans coming from the steppes and all that then there is anatolia or turkey and there is india three elements now the other two those who support the other two theories they have to argue for their homeland theory if they support the anatolian they have to point out why they are supporting it and this and so all they are only concentrating on that none of them has to concentrate on refuting some invasion theory that someone says that aryans came from outside and invaded anatolia so they don't have to sit down and disprove that because that question is only not there only the homeland question is there in both those but in the case of india due to so many political factors we have to those who are arguing for against the iit they have to also uh, that is they have two cases to fight one is they have to disprove the invasion argument and they have to present the out of india argument so our task is much more difficult and those who say oit is not necessary they are sabotaging their own case and converting it into a half case they are only fighting half the battle and they are ignoring the other half so that is the first thing that all people in this discussion should realize now what are the basic issues the basic question is where is the homeland situated right but there are two parts to this firstly what was the linguistic situation suppose you say this was the homeland india anatolia or the steppes then what happened inside that homeland that is the first question when all were together and the second question is the earliest we know of all these languages is when they were in their historical habitat that is the earliest we know of sanskrit is in india the earliest we know of greek is in greece the earliest we know of hittite is in west asia where it was first historically known so wherever that homeland was situated how did they go from that homeland to that area that is the second question first is the homeland within the homeland and second is the migrations from that homeland so the first see the first thing about the homeland is based only on the uh, no that about how they went out from those uh, that homeland to other places that can only be answered by analyzing the data from the relevant fields of scientific study that is linguistic textual inscriptional evidence and archaeological evidence this is the second question about how they went out from the homeland but the first question about what happened inside that homeland that also in the other respect of the other two homelands you have to answer by speculation and theory and hypothesis only in the case of the indian homeland theory there is no need for speculation and hypothesis we have actual recorded history of the indo european branches in the original homeland in india so the indian homeland theory is actually much stronger than the other two now you must realize that as per all linguistic studies 
these various branches started moving out of the homeland somewhere around 3000 BC. Now 3000 BC is a time when we have records from China, we have records from Egypt, we have records from Mesopotamia. So it is not some prehistoric area, Paleolithic area, or some the area of dinosaurs. It is a recorded area in most of the civilizations of the world. So how is it that these Indo-Europeans, who became so important all over the world, how is it they don't have a record of 3000 BC? So you see, the other homeland theories choose to ignore that point, and they just go only in the field of speculation, hypothesis, and arguments. However, in the case of India, we have the recorded history. There are two main fields from which we can discuss this. They are the two primary fields are linguistics because the whole debate is about languages and their migration, right? Not about whether white-skinned people or uh, you know, blonde-haired people moved here or there, or certain genes or DNA went from one area to the other. It's not that. It is about these languages. And secondly, analysis of textual inscription and other recorded data. Only when records are there, you can talk. Otherwise, you are just talking in the air and uh, speculating, right? If you in some area, for example, in the Indus Valley now, Harappan site, if you actually find an inscription and it is read, like, you know, the Brahmi script was not read until some European scholars deciphered it. And once it was read, all this thing about Ashoka and his pillars and his inscriptions and all became a part of our history. So, until that language is deciphered, but even then, we knew that the Ashokan in the Maurya kingdom was an Indo-European language speaking or Aryan kingdom. We didn't require decipherment for that. But in the case of the Harappan civilization, we do require because there is no recorded, it is not known what language was spoken. It was just discovered in the last century. And that is the case with all other Indo-European areas. If you are trying to talk about it as being the original homeland, there is no record anywhere. And wherever record is there, it will either be in inscriptions or it will be in some textual traditional memories, which have to be not taken on faith but how to be examined and proved or disproved. Now, archaeology is also a primary relevant field, but it is a secondary. It has, when is it uh, relevant? Only when you find written inscriptions there. As I said, you don't find them in either the steppes or Anatolia or in the Harappan sites, texts which can be read, are not found. So archaeology is, uh, can be primary only when you find written records. Otherwise, it is the most important secondary field because you can take other aspects and argue. Argue. It's not proof. And all other fields of scientific study, all others, whether you say astronomy or even genetics, if people come out try to show that it is also relevant, even then they become important only in the manner in which they fit in with the data of linguistics and textual Prove evidence. So these are the two primary ones, linguistic and textual. So next, out of India theory, I'll give the textual. Now the Rigveda is the oldest recorded Indo-European language document. Now I have shown in many books and articles, too long to show in this talk, that the Mitanni people had migrated from the Rigvedic area during the period of composition of the new Rigveda. 
not to some listener who doesn't know all this, he'll have to go through my blog. But I have shown that the Rigveda consists of two parts and not shown only on my listing, shown on the linguistic evidence and the testimony of Indologists. And these two parts are the new Rigveda and the old Rigveda. And the Mitali people were speaking a language which was re related to the new Rigveda, which contains a large number of words and forms which were not there in the old Rigveda. And they are found in the Mitali and they are found in the Avestan uh, Avesta also of Iranians. So now the Mitali people were there in 1500 BC already as an established people. So backdating from that, I have shown that the oldest parts of the old Rigveda go beyond 3000 BC. Now what does that, what do the oldest parts of the old Rigveda show? At this date, at 3000 BC, they show that the composers were initially inhabitants of an area in Haryana. In Haryana, not everywhere, but only in and around Haryana in the oldest period of the old Rigveda. They had no memories of an, any extra ex origin. They didn't even know areas outside India at that time. And certainly they had no idea that they, had, they or their ancestors had come from somewhere else. And they were attached to that area with ancestral ties. Anyone who analyzes the Hindus will see that. And they had no acquaintance with any local non-Indo-European people. That is, in 3000 BC, they were spread out uh, in, in, I mean, in Haryana, before 3000 BC, they were not aware of any non-Indo-European, Dravidian, Austric, Sumerian, Burushaski, Andamanese, Silo-Tibetan, Ural-Altaic, whatever, nothing. All the names in that are Indo-Aryan names. So, which means there were no non-Indo-European people in that full area in 3000 BC. And all the local rivers and animals in the oldest books have purely Indo-Aryan names. So, this history of the oldest Rigvedic people goes back beyond 3000 BC. But linguists have analyzed on the basis of linguistic evidence, which shows that all the 12 branches were geographically located in nearby areas so that they had contact with each other and uh, influence each other till around 3500 to 3000 BC. So at the time of composition of the old Rigveda, those other 11 branches also must have been somewhere around Haryana where they were still some, in some way in contact, not completely broken away from the Vedic people. And the Iranian speakers were there for an even longer period of time because they share the new Rigvedic elements, etc. So they must have been somewhere close to the Rigvedic people who were in Haryana in 3000 BC. So therefore there has to be some evidence of correlation between the 12 branches and the traditional historical paradigm of different peoples or tribes. You know, our Puranas don't tell us about Proto-Greeks and Proto-Slavonic and Proto-Germanic people and all. They talk in terms of tribes. So we have a traditional historical paradigm of different peoples or tribes living in North and Northwestern India. Now, when uh, the Puranas start their traditional narrative, they give a myth mythological beginning that there was an ancient king called Manu Vaivaswat who had 10 sons and from his 10 sons, all the people of India are descended. 
that is the main point of the puranas but although they talk about 10 sons and their descendants the actually all the history is concerned with only two main lunar tribes kurus and yadus and one solar tribe ikshvakus you will see like the ramayana is about the ikshvakus the mahabharata is about the purus and then of course yadus because krishna is there and all and all in traditional history these are the three main groups the anus and druhyus are located to the west and northwest of the purus and according to the traditional literature the druhyus migrated out of india in a very ancient period and then the anus occupied the areas therefore it is clear that the druhyus represent the first indo european migration of branches out of india who went out from india into afghanistan then migrated northwards into central asia and then migrated towards europe and anatolia that is the hittite now the rigveda records a major event the dasharadne battles in the oldest books between and see what are the druhyus went out in pre rigvedic times remember now in the rigvedic the oldest period the dasharadne battle took place in the punjab between the puru king sudas and 10 anu tribes because the anus were occupying that full area at that time to the west of haryana to the west of the rigvedic people now the rigveda contains 1028 hymns and 10552 verses but just four verses from two hymns give us this solid evidence it records the names of the anu tribes who fought against sudas look at the figures 1028 hymns just two of them give us this data out of 10552 verses only four give so it's not you know like tno can all like some people claim he picks some word from some text from any text from anywhere in the world from any period and he tries to connect them this is solid historical data given in this dasharadne hymns now all the names can be identified with the earliest known later to this but earliest known historical names of people belonging to four of the indo european branches there are 12 branches so four of them iranian armenian albanian and greek their ancient names are recorded as the tribes who fought against sudas now linguists you know on the basis of linguistic analysis they have also said you know this was the homeland sepis of course from there the hittites migrated first then the tokharian migrated then the five european branches migrated etc and finally there were five branches remaining in the homeland according to the linguists they were these same four branches and indo aryan and in this battle you find indo aryan king fighting against the ancestors of the other four branches who are all located in this punjab haryana area in that time so after that you know there are this migration of i have in my books i have given much more detail concerning the avesta and other iranian history etc i will not go into all that now i have given it in my blog the aryan story versus true aryan history you can see it on my blog or it must be there in academia also since i put all my articles there then i have given all the evidence till then means on 27 2020 i wrote this give the final version of this article the full out of india case in short revised and enlarged then again i only took up the linguistic case and gave a talk of which that powerpoint program 
of that talk. I have put up as an article the complete linguistic case for the out of India theory. Now, after that, objections raised by critics on specific points. Even if those objections have been made on Twitter, if I thought them important enough, I have been completely answered them in numerous articles on my blog. And then whenever any new evidence came up after these above summaries, I have again given new articles about them. So now the case has been presented in full. I'm not saying more evidence will not come, but it will just be added to this existing mass of evidence. So the out of India theory is now complete. I have presented this out of India theory like this, but there are other very uh, many important scholars who have done studies. As I said, they have not presented this study about OIT, but they have presented other studies which buttress this theory by giving very strong positive evidence, and uh, they have analyzed other, uh, as I said, linguistics and textual, mainly linguistic and archaeological data. Like D. B. Lal archaeology, Nicholas Kazanas linguistics, and A. A. Semenenko and Conrad Els both have written on a wide number of fronts and on summarizing this OIT case. Now the entire case is now unanswerable, and the only major thing preventing it from being accepted is politics and coordinated stonewalling from the deeply entrenched vested interests on the A. I. T. side. Now we can. As, and we do blame the AIT side and the huge number of allies that they have everywhere, who are anti-Hindu or anti-Indian or various other reasons are there. They may not have been anti to begin with, but as the dialogue debate progressed, they became more and more anti-Hindu and anti-Indian. So I don't, I won't say they were like that to begin with. All of them. Now, while blaming them, we cannot remain silent. On the fact that there are many internal stumbling blocks from within the anti-AIT and the general Hindu side, you know we represent Hindu culture and Hindu point of view, but all Hindus don't necessarily see it like that, unfortunately. Firstly, the Aryan invasion theory is backed by a wide spectrum of official, national, and international academic, media, and political forces. While the out of India theory is officially a neglected or orphan, no one is backing it officially anywhere. Secondly, I have already described in the beginning most anti anti AIT writers. They are only concerned with showing that the Vedas go back or that they are co uh, connected with the Harappan civilization. But either they fail or they refuse to accept the importance of the OIT on linguistic and textual ground. That is a big stumbling block. So. That has to be that they have to accept it and move together, everyone. But there are other vested interests, even from among those who may not be anti-OIT. They are not inimical to the idea of OIT, but they have their own, you know, prejudices and biases and obsessions because of which they have contributed to fudging the issues and preventing the united presentation of a full OIT version. So I will just. Name go through them. Which are these other vested interests? The internal stumbling blocks. First of all, are the fundamentalist religious elements who insist that the Vedas are divine, timeless, revealed texts which cannot give us any history, and they reject any analysis which uses Western tools. They make it an Indian versus Western 
rather than aat versus oit issue and uh, they say linguistics was invented by uh, in the last 200 300 years they can't tell us our ancient history they reject ideas of language family and proto indo european and they reject any analysis which goes beyond the traditional indian methods and parameters of textual analysis you know we have a huge and massive history of 2000 years of analyzing text people wrote commentaries on books they wrote commentaries on the commentaries and then they discussed them and had debates so they say we should use their methods but you know those people did not know that there was such a thing as indo european language family so they could not have discussed this issues this is a new issue which has come to our knowledge now after contacting with after contact with europeans etc so we have to use methods and sciences which are applicable now that is the first group the more fundamentalist ones who want just traditional and religious then there are those who have no objection but the only objection is why do you think that there was proto indo european and then other groups went out no vedic sanskrit was the original language and all those who went out they took vedic culture otherwise they agree with you oit but don't bring in all this pi and all it is the vedic people who went out and took our culture all over the world that is the second group now thirdly there is a large body of hindus addicted to the idea that vedic culture was the source and fountain head of at least the whole of indian culture and civilization if not world culture and civilization so they want to trace everything from india you know whether it is the austric people or even the andamanese or something some of them try to show there some connection with the puranas and vedic uh, this thing and try to say they all came from this culture so what i have shown is that vedic culture was the culture of just one tribe the purus who lived in and around haryana and there were many other cultures of many other ancient indian tribes all over india which later when all hinduism united all this now they are all parts of hinduism but they were not part of vedic culture and i have written detail uh, many detailed articles on this so they find it but absolutely unacceptable they feel that i am reducing the status of the rigveda and the vedic text from the ancestral to just one group but that is the fact and nothing to be ashamed of everything starts in one place now they are on the other hand more modern people like archaeologists genetics and others they want to derive all indian cultures and all indian people also from the culture of the harappan so you know they say all of indians are descended from the harappan how can they be the harappan culture was restricted geographically to one area in the northwest and north do you mean to say all the rest of india was absolutely a desert with no people staying there obviously there were cultures and civilizations all over the different degrees of civilized people all over india so this is one stumbling block they all want one fountain head of indian now there is among them there are many uh, people who do study i will not name names but i think people should will be aware of what i am talking about who feel that indian history should be written according to the puranas and epics and they want vedic history to include an account for every major king dynasty kingdom and sage recorded in these texts you know they don't want it restricted to the purus of haryana and all so they go to the puranic list 
they even count number of generations between different kings they say that between this king and this king there were four generations or six generations or how do you know because the lists don't are not complete lists and even they have been drawn up you know by collating the puranic material by scholars for example if you see those who have written on the puranic list pargeter smith pusalkar etc you look at the list and you see they are all different from each other they are not exactly similar in fact there are very glaring differences between among the three lists so yes the study of the puranas and epics is very important because that is our history and tradition our traditional history so it has to be done you must write books on puranic history and the epic history but when you obsess with combining it with the rigvedic history and then you want to find persons from one in the other and somehow combine the two and when it intrudes into the rigvedic analysis with reference to the aryan debate then it becomes a big problem in this context and this is what i meant there are scholars who are who want at least to identify the major puranic epic persons dynasties and tribes dynasties and tribes in the region of the rigvedic people on the banks of the saraswati or in the cities of the harappan civilization means they want that these at least if not everyone at least these main tribes must have originated there and they are the ishwakus yadus and purus as i said all our traditional histories concentrated on these three groups so when i say purus alone were in that they represented the saraswati civilization and culture they don't like it now i have pointed out actually that the harappan culture was not just puru culture purus were in the north eastern part of it below them were to the west and south of them were the anus and originally even the druyus who migrated out and the yadus to the south but these people want the saraswati to be the center where the rigveda was composed to be the central original point of all these at least these three tribes and if possible all the other tribes now there is no such data in either the rigveda or in the puranas and epics which can be interpreted like this so then there is a full fledged agenda of misinterpretation and distortion of the rigvedic and puranic epic data so this is a big stumbling block especially i mean i know i'm being selfish here but i feel that my what i have presented the oit can be hijacked into a different plane and be taken off at a tangent so i feel it necessary to say this next then there is of course a large group of writers who want to take traditional indian historical events back by thousands ten thousands or even lakhs of years and they find a wide range of sciences to support their this thing now i will say admit that these people don't really interfere with our oit paradigm they are because they are only obsessed with chronology they are not obsessed with tampering with any of the oit they will agree with the oit but they say no your dates are wrong the dates must go long behind that is the Uh, sixth group now every single one of these groups has large fan following which are always militantly up in arms you know i am abused the conradesta is abused many times on uh, social media and apparently by people belonging to all these six groups because we are not uh, pandering to their you know obsessions or whatever so because of that there is there cannot be general acceptance of any rational out of india theory or any rational interpretation of historical data 
and they are as much a problem as any AIT fans. So naturally, it makes job very easy for AIT protagonists because when when one side is divided, they can just sweep through. So basically, we must remember the OIT is basically irrefutable. and we can only keep strengthening its nature by presenting new evidence whenever it comes up and answering all arguments but unless there is a rational consensus among hindus of all brands the stalemate will only continue and the victory of the oit will only remain confined to what you very correctly described as a few echo chambers so that is the problem we have to all present a united front that is what i am meant to say in all that i have been talking about till now now i will present the archaeological case and the linguistic case in short for the out of india theory now the textual i as i said i have written in detail and i already told the what the oit was which is all about the textual so now let us see the archaeological evidence now firstly archaeology has not been able to provide any evidence for the movement of indo-european groups from the steppes to central asia or from central asia to the vedic harappan area or even from the vedic harappan area to the rest of north india which is what the theory is all about there is no archaeological support for any of these stages in fact archaeologically the proto they have not even been able to identify any particular archaeological culture as proto indo-european proto indo-iranian or even vedic because actually as we saw the harappan sites of the northeast are vedic but they reject that so apart from that they have not been able to identify anything anywhere as vedic pi or pir that is proto indo iranian and when they do make attempts you know some archaeologists find something in somewhere on the on the way from the steppes to india some archaeological material is uncovered and immediately they say this these were the aryans on the way to india and iran but more serious and honest archaeologists completely reject these for example i have given quotations in my book from archaeologists like frankfort and lambert karlovsky they completely reject all these attempts to identify some archaeological site as indo european in any way and they point out that the kind of logic that these archaeologists use when they try to you know identify these sites the logic they if you use the same logic you can even identify chinese arab turk or even red indian sites of america as indo iranian if you use that kind of vague logic you know they use boats the indo europeans use boats so they must be indo europeans that kind of nonsense now for all the other indo european branches there is a, at least archaeological evidence which shows the entry of outsiders into those areas in all these cases for example in the case of armenia there is no archaeological evidence but the names of all the local places and area are non armenian and non indo european so there you have that evidence that they came from out which is not there for the rigveda because all the local place names and river names are indo aryan now but for all the other branches there is archaeological material showing the entry of indo european speakers into those areas always of course with the caution that when we say indo european speakers we don't have written material but they fit in into every other criterion 
But in the case of India alone, archaeologists have not been able to find any people coming into India in the dates, in the period which the linguists say they must have come in. So, for example, and this is not only our Indian archaeologists or Hindu archaeologists saying it. There was a conference in Toronto in 1991, which was attended by a large number of Western linguists and Western archaeologists. They were the two types of scholars who attended a conference and presented papers. And one of them was Witzel. And Witzel and Erdosi have compiled the volume containing all those papers. Now, all those, I have given the details from that in my book, but all the archaeologists there completely reject the Aryan invasion theory. They say there is no archaeological proof for it at all. They say that between the 5th century and the 1st uh, millennium and the 1st millennium, that is around 4000 BC to 1000 BC, there is no archaeological record of people coming in from outside. So after 1000 BC, of course, we have the Aryans all over India. And before 4000 BC, the linguistic evidence does not allow Aryans to be coming into India. They have to be coming after 3000 BC. But that is not supported by the archaeologists. So all these people, these archaeologists have pointed out that this is too early and too late to have any connection with Aryans. Whatever archaeological evidence is there of people entering into India, they have nothing to do with Aryans. In matters of migration, we must remember that archaeological evidence can only be found at the end point of the migration, not at the starting point. Like if, for example, your relatives go and stay in America, afterwards they will be recorded there as citizens, they will be paying taxes. There. So we have records of them there. But in modern times, of course, we will have records of them migrating there also. But in ancient times, when people migrated from one area to another, they did not leave some signs here, you know, suppose they migrated from India, they did not leave pillars saying that we are migrating to Anatolia, we are migrating to, they just went. So whatever evidence you find that archaeological evidence will be found at the end point, not at the starting point. For example, Europeans went to the American continent three centuries ago, four centuries ago, and they completely, they have taken over the North and South America. But archaeological material for this migration can, it can be found in America because then you see all European artifacts appearing in America. But you, it will not be found in Europe. But later, you know, Native American artifacts would start appearing in Europe, but only because the Europe-America context remained extremely strong and there was interaction. People came from Europe to America, England, America had uh, this thing, the English were ruling them until they broke free from them, etc. But in ancient times, when the Indo-Europeans migrated to another place, they completely lost contact with the home area. So, you will find evidence only of the home area culture in the migrated areas. You won't find, in the home area, you won't find archaeological proof that they, someone migrated from here. Only where, where they land up, you will find proof that someone came from out and landed here. Now, as I said, in the case of India, there is proof that no one landed here in those areas. Uh, but then some people say, but what is the proof that they went out from India? What is the proof? As I said, there is no proof. You cannot find proof of my emigration from some area. You can only find proof of immigration. Unless you know there is a recorded area and all. There is no record anywhere. 
so we cannot give proof now the evidence for immigration in all the other indo european areas is so strong archaeological evidence except in india and that itself is strong archaeological evidence for the oit and against the iit now at the same time although as i said you won't really find evidence at the starting point and on the way not necessarily but archaeologists like dp lal and numerous other scholars have actually provided detailed data showing identity between harappan archaeology and vedic text the presence of uh, this is uh, for example vedic fire altars have been found in harappan site now those who say these are not vedic fire altars where else have you found them they are not been found anywhere except in these vedic sites and later they are found all over north india of course now a a semenenko in his brilliant sangam talks presentation on 29 january he has provided details of very i saw the powerpoint presentation which he had put up on academy and it is brilliant he has shown so many uh, you know seals and photographs of uh, harappan artifacts which i had never seen for example there is a dancing girl we all know but he shown ananda dancing girl figure in which i had never seen so his article is his that talk and the presentation is presented is really brilliant it shows the connection between harappan archaeology and vedic text now those who object who say that but there are no special harappan features in the rigveda there are no cities there are no drainage systems described there are no street lights all these thing that you find in harappan so but then can you show some place where special vedic features are found and which can be fitted into the ait paradigm because the ait has a time frame that the aryan entered at this time then they went here then they went here but none of these are this uh, supported by archaeological data so their objections can be need not be taken seriously when they are not given proof they have no right to demand proof from us basically there is no archaeological evidence showing that the harappan civilization was non vedic or non indo european that is the fact that emerges from all this one other archaeological factor showing the identity of vedic and harappan culture is the pastoral nature of the proto indo european and vedic cultures you know even these people talk about pastoral steppe people who came to india so they accept that that was the most characteristic feature of the aryans who they say came from the steppe that they were pastoral pastoral means who had cattle bred cattle and uh, you know had dairying industry etc now the reconstructed proto indo european pastoral vocabulary which has been reconstructed by the linguists is most fully represented in the vedic vocabulary that is they have eight words for cow in proto indo european and vedic sanskrit is the only language which has all those eight words others have two or three or four so which means that vedic pastoral culture is very close to proto indo european pastoral culture but the only cattle found archaeologically in the whole of india from ancient times to recent times is the indian species bos indicus which was domesticated by the harappan so this was obviously the only species of cattle known to the vedic people 
so by implication this was also the only species of capital uh, of cattle known to the proto indo europeans whose pastoral vocabulary is fully represented in the rigveda also while there is evidence that there was no immigration of western cattle into india because none have been found except in recently you know jersey cows were brought here and cross bred etc that is modern colonial phenomenon before that there were no western cattle in india but there is plenty of archaeological evidence for the emigration of indian cattle and also indian elephants and indian peacocks to west asia and central asia in period represented historically by the first appearance of the mitanni in west asia so you see this is a very strong factor and as a corollary to the above there is the distribution of high lactase persistence is a very important factor which i presented recently in the iit uh, seminar although i was not present there i sent a paper to that effect now what is lactase persistence you know all mammals when they are born they have only milk for a certain period after that they are weaned away from milk then they start they start taking other uh, uh, food then what happens is that the ability to digest milk decreases and sometimes even goes completely after that weaning period so but in certain parts of the world where cattle were domesticated and uh, there was a flourishing uh, pastoral culture there you find high lactase persistence that is even after the weaning period the people can still digest milk otherwise that ability to digest milk goes so now in romero this paper by romero he has shown exactly where in india there is high lactase persistence today in today's date and if you look at that map the all the areas with high lactase persistence are the areas of the erstwhile harappan civilization in the south there is much less in the east of india also there is much less lactase persistence but it is very high in the harappan areas now we know that the harappans were one of the two domesticators of cattle species in the whole world you can check encyclopedias and wikipedia and all that for that two species of cattle were domesticated in the world of cows one was bos indicus in india and bos taurus in turkey not even in europe not even in the steppes and uh, so these harappan people were the people who domesticated indian cattle so they are one of the most there should be having the highest lactose persistence because they are the ones who have been since 7000 or 8000 years they have been using these indian cattle now what does this show that even today this lactase persistence is there in that very area so what does this mean that means that all these theories that the harappans went uh, were driven to the south and east and all is not true because if that was so that lactase persistence would have been in the south or the east whereas it is still there in the same harappan areas so this shows that there was no major exchange of population no major aryans coming and taking over the north no harappan being driven to the south etc even in harappan and pre harappan times the same so more or less you know all the upper barring you know internal migration which are always taking place everywhere but by and large the people of all the different parts of india 
are descendants of people who lived in those very areas 5000 6000 years ago by and large so this is a completely disproves the aryan invasion theory because not only do they not bring western cattle but the only lactase persistence found is in the harappan areas and not anywhere else so that harappan areas are the areas described in the rigveda they are the areas found by archaeologists for the harappan civilization and those are the areas where there is lactase persistence so what you see archaeologically that the harappan domesticated cattle is represented textually in the rigveda and back, going back also in the proto indo european reconstructed culture so this is the very strong evidence for the out of india theory and the indian homeland theory now there have been many scholars in recent times who have presented very significant archaeological data showing movements of people from india to the west means apart from this cattle moving west and indian elephants moving west and all that a recent presentation by a s menenko called step root of indo european dispersal which also was presented by in sangam talk on 12 february is a prime example of this so there are scholars now who are although it is not easy to get evidence of emigration from the starting point yet this paper by a s menenko is a prime example of a really magnificent achievement in this regard and hopefully there are many more scholars who will be also doing this and whose research may come to light very soon now he locates the proto indo european homeland in the border region between india and iran now this is the very area where interaction continued between the puru anu druyu proto indo european groups after the anus and druyus had spread out from the east as detailed in my books and papers on the basis of the textual evidence so here we have archaeology completely backing the oit and completely failing to support the aryan invasion theory now equally based on textual and archaeological evidence you know i always present it as textual evidence but it is basically archaeological evidence because see the we have the harappan seals but they have not really been satisfactorily deciphered to the acceptance of everyone in fact i don't think they have been deciphered satisfactorily so the earliest written data that we have about india is in the ashoka pillar so whether you like ashoka or not you have to give credit for one very great thing that indian history at least has a point of reference because of his pillars otherwise you know they would have brought aryans into india even 100 years 1000 years ago but they can't go after ashoka pillars because we know and of course the buddhist text also confirm that the whole of north india was indo european in the first millennium bc now this is significant because before the ashoka pillars the only attested indo aryan words are in 5000 15000 1500 bc and earlier in syria and iraq in west asia the mitanni kingdom was covered a huge area there for around 150 to 200 years now as i have shown see this is the archaeological proof of what i have given from the textual evidence the mitanni took with them the vocabulary of the new rigveda so since they are already in there in west asia in 1500 bc and even earlier 
because see, I have quoted in my book scholars like Vigil saying that they were not Mitanni. Their ancestors brought the Mitanni language there. So, which means that the ancestors who went from India were there at least 200, 300 years earlier. Now, they could have migrated from India only before 2000 BC to account for the chronology of their attested presence there. So, the old Rigveda must naturally come before the new Rigveda. So, it's just as I I have already said all this. The only point I'm making here is that this is not just textual evidence; it is archaeological evidence because of the Mitanni. inscription so now the ait uh, that was for archaeological you see we have evidence archaeological evidence for against the ait for the oit but there is no archaeological evidence for the ait so now we come to the linguistic evidence because this whole debate is about languages so it is basically a purely linguistic problem now the only three basic facts as i already said is that Twelve branches are they related to each other? All of them must be going back to an ancestral language, and all of them must have been in one homeland. So that is what this whole linguistic debate is about. But there is no linguistic evidence for a non-Indian homeland or against the OIT. In fact, as shown repeatedly in my articles and books and by many other scholars, all the evidence supports the out-of-India theory. and all the arguments which are claimed to support the ait actually turn out to support the oit i have given many examples like the uralic language is a full of indo iranian words and that is always given as proof of the ait but i have shown how it is in fact proof of the out of india theory so you see many which they claim are ait arguments are actually oit arguments so i will give some of the main uh, arguments in this case See Johanna Nichols. Anyone who has read my books will be familiar with this. She has pointed out there are several kinds of evidence for the, and she is a official Western academic, and a group of scholars from that uh, university in America did research and they combined these two volumes, and their conclusion was that there are several kinds of evidence for the Proto-Indo-European locus. What is locus? It's the area from where people spread out. and the evidence she gives is for the european languages she can't give for the indian and iranian languages and that locus she gives a whole if you go through this paragraph she says the structure of the family tree genetic diversity location of tocharian early attestation of anatolian the westward trajectories of languages etc etc which is all too technical for us but the conclusion from it is that the locus was to the east of the caspian sea and after analyzing more linguistic factors she finds that this was in ancient bactria sogdiana what is bactria sogdiana it is the part of central asia which covers northern afghanistan and areas to its north it is the very area which i have shown the textual proof of the anus and druyus migrating out is from this area so this is the indo europe locus of the indo european spread after a lot, very detailed linguistic analysis of the evidence now h uh, h hawk he is a strong ait supporter i have even written a blog article criticizing him now he had pointed out that the early indo european languages contain certain linguistic feature which cannot be captured by a tree diagram means you can't show this one it divided into two it divided into four etc 
you can show that some of them have some similarities with other branches and with some similarities with yet other branches so this is called uh, he said this can be shown on a map showing intersecting isoglosses now what is isogloss i have already spoken of it in previous talks but um, i think i'll again uh, clarify what it is now you know uh, all uh, now languages of south india and the dravidian languages as well as konkani marathi gujarati and oriya they all have a sound r r you know l a cerebral l so what um, hindi would say kala color uh, marathian would say kala so that r is the cerebral sound found in all these languages now this is not found in hindi so or other languages to the north so you can draw a map showing this area where all these languages develop this sound in common so what how wanted to say was that if you see all the isoglosses which unite certain branches of indo-european languages you can draw a dialect follow a dialectological approach and show how they migrated out of the homeland now i have written in detail on this sheet down below the last line 200 pages 205 to 307 102 pages of my book in 2008 i have shown how fox claim is completely faulty he tries to show that the isoglosses through the out of india the indian aryan invasion theory now i have shown how they all fit in perfectly with the textual evidence in the for the oit and now we come to something which i just came across uh, 2 3 years ago evidence you know when i was in school and college i had a, a passion for learning different alphabet languages etc and i can't learn too many languages but i used to learn numbers 1 to 100 in various languages and i had written them all in a in a notebook which had become yellowed and was staring so i thought what to do i can't keep this book i'll i'll make an article and put all the all of them on the internet and i intended that article to be that if you are studying a particular language and you want to know how that language forms the numbers from 1 to 100 you can find it in my article so that was the purpose of the article in which i gave a large number of languages indian african red in, uh, american indian australian etc etc now while i was preparing this article i got this unbelievable evidence for the out of india theory you know decimal uh, numbers in any language they have follow a certain system and um, when you analyze it you see there are four stages in the development of decimals 1 to 100 four stages the first for example a classic example is chinese in the chinese language you have only 11 words words for 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 8 9 10 and a word for 100 and out of these 11 words you make all the words from 1 to 100 then the second stage is classic example is turkish if you take international example in turkish you have words from 1 to 10 and then you have words for 20 30 40 50 60 70 80 90 100 and all the other words are formed out of these 19 words this is the second stage of development the third stage is found in it will be found in the language that my listeners know 
for example english hindi or uh, no no not hindi sorry english tamil malayalam french whatever this system you have to learn learn the numbers from 1 to 20 by heart and after that you have to learn the numbers for 30 40 50 60 70 80 90 100 and then the other numbers are formed by a system from based on these 28 words now finally you come to the fourth stage which is found in the whole world only in north india the north indian indo aryan languages are in this fourth stage where if you are learning in north indian language you have to learn all the 100 words by heart you cannot learn a few words and automatically get for example 20 21 now a and b combine to 21 how do you have to learn that word by heart you can't automatically get it or take in marathi take the words 15 25 35 45 55 65 in english it's very easy you know the words for 20 30 40 50 60 you just add 5 to them and you get 25 35 45 55 65 etc whereas in marathi how do you get 15 it is 15 how do you get 25 it is panch vis how do you get 35 it is pas tis how do you get 45 it is panche chalis how do you get 55 it is pansa one how do you get 65 it is pa sasht so you see that five only changes from panch panche pansa pa, pa pas etc so you have to learn that particular word in full it's not like english that you automatically oh, just put five behind it it's not like that so there are these four stages now the uh, according to the theory there was a proto indo european language and then all these branches came into being and the hittite branch was the first to leave the homeland now it so happened that we don't have the full number system of proto indo european or hittite so we don't know which stage it was or these languages were in the decimal system so it may have been in stage 1 or stage 2 we can speculate but sanskrit in india tokharian to the north of india and spoken sinhalese to the south of india are all three in stage 2 then all the other indo european languages you know italic celtic germanic baltic slavic albanian greek armenian iranian as well as literary sinhalese see spoken sinhalese is in stage 2 but literary sinhalese which was because after becoming buddhist they were influenced by the prakrits of that period so it is based on a stage 3 prakrit which is not recorded anywhere but this literary sinhalese represents that stage 3 prakrit so all are in stage 3 and the dravidian language is also in stage 3 and only the modern indo aryan languages are in stage 4 so here you see where did this four stages develop in north india in india see the second stage is found in india to the north of india and to the south of india and all the other indo european branches as well as the dravidian languages are in stage 3 which means that the dravidian languages were frozen at stage 3 while the north indian languages moved on to stage 4 and the branches which went out of india also went out of india when india was in stage 3 of decimal numbers so in india you find stages 2 3 4 outside india you find only stage 3 so this shows 
that this full development took place in india and this is the most strongest and very systematic proof for the out of india theory because this has no explanation in any other homeland theory now linguistic paleontology you know right from the first day of indo european studies they have tried to reconstruct the culture of the proto indo european now how do they do that they see there is a animal or a plant which has a similar name in english and in say sanskrit so that means that animal or plant was known to the ancestors but if it is found only in one area it may or may not have been known there is no proof so they took out all these common words and they claimed that these words prove the step homeland because they show a temperate environment of animal and plant names for example bears wolves they are found in europe they are found in india so they are common names but they represent a colder area they said there are no indian animals but this is wrong because they have suppressed the fact they mention it and then they dismiss it that there are common indian names for elephant or ivory this is sanskrit ibha rigvedic it's it's the rigvedic word greek erpa elephas latin ebur and hittite lapa all of these can be derived from the root uh, rab or lab which became ribha or lubha and what is this root mean it means to grasp to hold something so the elephant holds things with its trunk that's why the name for the elephant was derived from this verb this root ribha lubha now it is the same meaning as hastin the elephant does not have a hand what do they mean they mean its trunk which is used like a hand to grasp things so you see it has the same etymology and in the rigveda there are there is a certain class of divine beings called ribhu what do they do they work with the hand they grasp things they are artisans they do work with the hand so again hastin ribhu and this word ribalba they all show that common origin and this these words are found in four different ancient languages ibha in sanskrit greek latin and hittite so and this india is the only indo european language speaking area which has elephant outside that they are found in southeast asia and they are found in the interior of africa this evidence conclusively proves the indian homeland from linguistic paleontological ground and the oit case so it has been consistently stonewalled they have no arguments against it so they just keep it silent and if they are forced to mention it somewhere in a line they mention it and dismiss it but it cannot be dismissed it is the most solid evidence now the western and particularly the five european branches germanic celtic baltic slavic and uh, italic they have borrowed from a number of other language families as they moved west from india to europe and this gives proof of their movement uh, from india to europe now three scholars chang has proved that chinese words are found in german which shows that they went from this area gamkrelidze and ivano in their magnum opus on the indo european homeland they have shown a large number of words from yenisean and altaic branches which are found in the european languages and nikos uh, in that which i have already referred to her grand study she has shown many semitic words which went through caucasian that is the georgian and other languages of the caucasian mountains 
into the language of the european that they migrated west so you see so many different language families they have borrowed from as they went from india to the west which are india it are not found in indo iranian now two words much discussed as borrowing from proto semitic are the words for wine and taurus taurus is the western uh, wild cattle these words were originally semitic you find that and they were borrowed by proto indo european so these people say that you know semitic areas are to the south of the steppes so it proves that the proto indo europeans were in the steppes but actually it proves the opposite because there are three branches to the east of the semitic areas there are indo aryan iranian and tokharian and these words are not found in these three branches whereas they are found in all the other eight branches which are to the west of the semitic which shows that these words were borrowed when those eight branches were moving from east to west across the semitic influenced areas whereas the three branches which remained in the east from before from the beginning they did not borrow these words now this is a what were people would say is con- controversial this scholar isidoden presented a paper in in a conference in 1970 it was published and presented in some conference very showed that proto indo european and proto austronesian that is the malaysian and languages to the east in southeast asia they have very similar words such basic words as the first four numbers like in malay malaysian language do you know what are the numbers for 2 3 and 4 dua tiga and patru which are obviously like the sanskrit dua three and chatur then you say chatur and patru are different but you know in romanian language the word uh, ch has become p so it is a regular indo european change now dane points out and also for some of the personal pronouns and also for the words for water and land now people will say how but how can indo european have had connections in the ancient primitive past with the austronesian languages even i cannot explain it except that india is the closest to the austronesian area and certain scholars like chatterjee had said that the austronesian languages migrated east from india now he also had no proof for it so we have no proof but we have this fact that these all all these words are very close to each other and must and must be showing some kind of contact now the uralic languages as i mentioned contain a large number of words kuzmina in 2001 has given a big list of these words which are borrowed from indo aryan and iranian and this again ulta logic they say that this proves that the indo iranians came from the steppes close to the finno ugrian areas finno ugrian finnishian hungarian the uralic areas but actually the movement is in the opposite direction why because all these borrowings are in only one direction that is all have been borrowed from indo iranian to uralic there is not a single accepted example of a borrowing in the opposite direction although people have struggled to search for such words since uh, many decades now when does this happen this situation takes place that one family borrows from the other but the other does not borrow from the first family this happens when migrants from one area go and settle in another area and the local people borrow words from them they also borrow words from the local people but after some time they merge among the local people so what happens 
the local languages contain words from their language but where did those people go from that area does not have those words i give practical example if you didn't understand what i'm saying the arabs you know in the after uh, muslims invaded india the many arabs came or uh, including scholars and all they came into india and then they have given birth to urdu as a mixture of hindi and uh, arabic words you know hindi and urdu are the same except that it contains arabic words and some turkish and persian words otherwise grammatically you will say main aaya tha whether it is hindi or urdu there is no difference so so many arabic words were borrowed by them now our mutt of my community is in karnataka and it's a hindu religious mutt but there is one ceremony which at the in the evening the light is uh, lamp is lighted we call it, it is called duty ke salam now salam duty ke is a kannada word for lamp that torch and uh, salam is obviously an arabic word so you see all over india you will find arabic words have been borrowed by the local languages why because the arabs came to india but in arabia those arabs did not take back indian words so arabian language has not got indian words similarly you know 1000 years ago you have the cambodian temples of angkor wat etc there were hindu kingdoms there today all the languages of southeast asia are have so many sanskrit words but not one single cambodian thai burmese vietnamese or malaysian word has entered sanskrit why because sanskrit people went there they didn't come here and once they went there after some time they merged into the local people like arabs who must have come here whoever they remained here they merged into these people, indians and they did not take the words back to their homeland whereas english people came and stayed here we borrowed from them they borrowed from us and then they went back to england and wrote books and there was continuous contact so the indian word also went to england but in ancient times this two way traffic was not there was only one way traffic so what this shows is that some people went from indo india and iran is area to uh, eastern europe where the uralic people were there and this same situation took place there then the indo iranians who went there merged with the local people and they did not come back to india to give us some uralic words so we don't have any uralic words but the uralic language is how indo iranian words so this is a strong proof and second even stronger proof is that one of the words borrowed by the uralic languages is the bactrian word for camel you know the bactria margiana which i already put from where the indo europeans went so some indo iranians must also have gone with them or whatever anyway their word is been taken from bactria margiana so how can you say these people came from there obviously they whatever word they got was from migrants from this area to that area now they have classified certain elements as pre indo aryan or even pre indo iranian many elements are there now the surprising thing is according to them indo iranians came from the steppes to central asia then they moved south and occupied the harappan areas on the vedic areas and then they moved east so before that they were together there and whatever languages they brought with them were what these people call indo iranian and there are many linguistic features in indo european languages are pre indo aryan or even pre indo iranian so they should not be found in india because only indo iranians came to india how can the earlier features be found in india 
but they are found in india and they found to the east of the rigvedic area within india rather than to in the distant west so which shows that the earlier linguistic phases before indo iranian were not somewhere in the steppes they were in the interior of india for example proto indo european has a distinction between r and l for example surya for sun in greek it is helios so h s becomes h so it is helios sort of and r they have l whereas we have r and many branches have l so it is claimed that l is the original form which has changed to r in sanskrit and iranian now surprisingly vedic avestan and mitanni all have only r and whatever l is there in rigvedic avestan and mitanni have only r sound they don't have l sound at all in their languages whereas in vedic l has come but all the linguists have said this l came from dialects spoken to the east which preserved that original r l difference now since neither the rigveda nor the avesta nor the mitanni preserved that distinction earlier how could people to the east have preserved that distinction which must be far to the west right it should be in the steps a distinction which they left which they stopped uh, following after they came east so again everything which is pre indo iranian you find many things to the east not to the west then uh, this norman made a study of words where he found that there are many words in the eastern dialect in north india which are not found in sanskrit and which cannot have been derived from sanskrit and they have direct equivalent in indo european languages other than sanskrit that is western indo european languages in this uh, and uh, similarly many words in sinhalese show forms which are closer to other branches rather than to sanskrit for example the sinhalese word watura for water english water hitite watar whereas in sanskrit it is udar udan or udak or udar the r is not there in it so this is a pre shows closer affinity to them the western languages although sinhalese is right to the south of india now i forgot to mention actually in this paper there is the bangani language spoken in uttarakhand which there was a big controversy some 30 years ago after some linguists discovered that it is it represented a kentum uh, language kentum languages are found only in the west in europe and uh, only the satam languages are supposed to have come east but there is a kentum language that bangani spoken in uttarakhand after that the tokharian language was discovered to the north of india which was also kentum so you see you find all these pre indo european pre indo iranian things in the east which goes against the ait but supports the out of india theory there are many other significant pieces of linguistic evidence for the oit and against the ait and they have been cited in my books and articles then nicolas kazanas writings on indo european linguistics are important because he has done very great research in that also in the writings of conrad ist and some others the linguistic evidence for the out of india theory is solid fact based and logical and cannot be refuted for example the four stages of decimal numbers how will you refute it 
it's a fact if you examine those languages you see that they are in those stages and all the points that are mentioned now they are all factual you cannot refute them whereas the linguistic arguments for the aryan invasion theory are all wishful speculative naive and based on special pleading when you say but why does it prove the ait no no it does you have to accept it that professor has said it that is the kind of argument so they can be easily refuted those arguments so the oit case is now irrefutable whether anyone likes my use of that word or not you know in all my books and articles i write that irrefutable so many people say how can you use such a word what does he think of himself but it's true whether you like it or not it is irrefutable no one can refute it and the polit but but the political dice is loaded against the out of india theory so although it has actually won on logical ground in practically it has it is not it is not a dead horse as i said so what next the scholars doing research on the oit can only continue doing their work finding newer and newer evidence answering objections and queries and easily refuting new ait arguments which can only be as flimsy as the older ones beyond that we can only hope that the political dice become slightly less loaded against us which is a very big hope indeed i don't have that hope and secondly that the ait side makes the big mistake of daring to take on the oit side in debate which they are avoiding if someone among them makes this mistake they will lose the debate and then that will end the matter for them but again this is a very big hope because they know that uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread so they will never tread into this such debate so beyond continuing to work and to hope that is little we can do so now um with that really really you know insightful presentation and what you've said in the end makes so much sense that we have to keep doing and we have to keep pushing the uh, political dice in our favor so now i'll quickly go to dr conrad else so that he can move this conversation forward and ask his very relevant questions to shrikant ji Yeah, so I, I greatly enjoyed um, not just the contents of what you said, which by now I'm rather familiar with, especially the fire with which you said it. Very good. Now, I've also been listening to what Tanya just said, that she herself came to not feel at home in India because of the uh, Aryan invasion theory. So that's the effect that it apparently has on native Indians. Now imagine the absurdity of this. You see, here there are people who are told not to feel at home in India because their ancestors have been there for only four thousand years. See, I mean, even if this was true, you see, it is quite absurd in international terms. Imagine how many Americans would not be legitimate Americans if their ancestors were only there for three three thousand years. So um, the whole situation that we are up against uh, is is very bizarre. And so some people in the West who don't understand the situation think that the out of India theory is very politicized. not realizing that the most politicized historical theory in world history is precisely their own Aryan invasion theory which wreaks ha- havoc 
which works havoc in India already since independence or since before. Um, anyway, so there's more absurdity here. The whole absurdity of the, the debating situation. Actually, the evidence that you have developed has been accumulating so much and yet, and yet the professionals remain there. So here's my, uh, my first question to you. So you have said correctly that the out of India theory is an orphan, whereas the out are in invasion theory has the support of the entire academic establishment and also the political support of the Nehruvians, Ambedkarites, the Revidianists, the missionaries, and in fact, in a, in a passive, inertial sense, even by the present so-called Hindu nationalist government. Like just now, Prime Minister Modi has again reiterated the use of the word Adivasi, which is a, a one-word propaganda term that tells all the non-tribals that they are illegitimately in India, that they are invaders. Right. Now, while the enemy side is very determined in upholding the Aryan invasion theory and throwing the consequences of that theory in your face regularly, very few people on the Hindu side seem motivated. There's really only a handful of people who carry the flag of the out of India theory. So how come people around you are so lukewarm, so unmotivated? Uh, I think uh, most of it I spoke uh, in the, that there are um, many large sections of Hindus, large, very large sections who have certain obsessions and uh, and they are concerned with those obsessions, whether of chronology or divine revelation or whatever, of the, you know, Vedic being the fountainhead, etc., etc. And since my OIT theory does not um, pander to all those things, many of the people who are actually strongly Hindu, they are not really my supporters. And those who are my supporters, they are, I'm sure, active on uh, uh, social media. But as I said, the number is small. And if I, with my books, cannot do anything, what will those people do? And as I said, see, if, uh, ultimately, we can all talk about it. Not lukewarmly, but it very strongly and uh, this thing. But uh, what will be the effect if those people up don't do anything about it? And as I said before in one talk, when such a question was asked about why OIT is not being supported, well, we all know two sadhus were killed in Palghar and created such a furor all over the country. Who bothered about them? So why will they bother about the out-of-India theory? You see, certain things are very important. When elections come up, they take up those issues and suddenly become passionate supporters of such issues. Those who can do things I'm talking about, not the people on the internet. Now, these people become very strong supporters of those issues. And once the election is over, they stop, they forget them. Now, this Aryan invasion theory is not even an issue you can raise in election. So why will anyone bother about it? So I, I, there's no question of supporters being lukewarm. The thing is that, as I said, the dice is loaded. 
against us <laughs> if i can't do anything what will uh, any supporter do is it not um, bizarre that those uh, pontificating against the our innovation theory that they never sit down to devise a winning strategy you see they apparently maybe are so insular that they don't care about what the rest of the world says at any rate no one seems to have remarked publicly that in spite of all this evidence we are not making any headway you see is nobody concerned to devise some kind of winning strategy don't they feel concerned that this seemingly is not going anywhere the winning strategies are being devised because indians are very uh, i mean quite expert in many fields so they do devise winning strategies but those winning strategies are for making money expanding businesses winning elections not for fighting for intellectual issues unfortunately and uh, those few who are doing it as i said that is why i said we we should continue doing our work and hope to so work and hope are the only two things that we can do you know uh, anyone who has run an animal farm will know that most hindus are uh, fall in the category of the uh, horse in that who has also has two slogans not work and hope but the leader is always right means leader i am not referring to any particular person all those who are leader they are always right and second i will work harder in the service of those leaders not for such causes so we can do our work we cannot uh, i don't know how how we can make people more aware i have no idea and yes as you said many people remark that for the more evidence you put out it makes no change and all we have seen many people those are the same supporters whom you have referred to as you call they also raised this point but who will listen that is the point now about the other camp about the ari invasion camp you spoke about the vested interests that the people supporting the ari invasion theory would you throw some more light on the different motives that may be at play there yeah see the vested interest means obviously there are um, as you pointed out the missionary group the um other groups of that kind who are anti hindu or who are against india who don't want india to rise as a civilization again they are against it of course but other vested interests are you know uh, caste groups within india and they may be calling themselves dalit groups for example and fighting in the name of being the oppressed natives of india who are invaded and uh, you know harassed and tortured by the invading aryans surprisingly the the person whom they consider their spiritual guru dr ambedkar was the one who had strongly opposed the aryan invasion theory at a time when you know people like lokmanya tilak were promoting the theory strongly dr ambedkar had strongly opposed it and yet those people talking in his name they associate caste and race and they talk about this aryan invasion theory at the same time there is that other group like as i said lokmanya tilak was there but his heritage is being still carried forward by many groups of brahmins all over india who feel that they they belong to superior aryan race and they are not you know belong to the rip rap of lower caste people 
they are separate they identify with the west and so they these brahmin groups are strong supporters of aat and they are not anti hindu groups let me tell you they are very staunchly hindu groups who are and uh, pro aat they pro aat aat and anti oat as hindus and then there is that other group among them many of them you know have studied in western universities in western tech as anya ji pointed out how she her tech influence her thinking so these people also have that same thinking so even if they think as hindus they don't dare to think that those western scholars whom they revere so much could have been wrong and then of course there are those scholars western scholars who may be many of them may be genuine scholars also but they have been writing since so many years on a certain thing now how can you expect them to say mean every most scholars don't have a big heart like bp lal to say yes i was wrong and now i'm going to say the right thing so these are all the different vested interests one uh, one lacuna one lack that existed in the out of india so far at least that was my impression is the lack of archaeological evidence of a trail of emigrants starting from india and going through central asia you see in the other direction of course we do note the absence of any evidence for the aryan invasion but on our side we were not doing much better in the sense that we still had no um, evidence for the counter movement for the emigration from india however i note with satisfaction during your lecture that like myself you also seem to be quite happy with the recent presentations by dr alexander semenenko who has made it his business not just in other fields like um, matching vedic literary data with harappan archaeological data but also specifically <clears throat> here to map out actual archaeological evidence for a movement from india into central asia and even beyond so um i suppose we are in agreement and so please uh please uh, say your own uh, your own impressions about this but i suppose we are in agreement in thinking that we are now witnessing another big step forwards one that we can thank dr semenenko for yeah exactly as i said i semenenko's uh, uh, paper paper and he's doing a primary work in this field and uh, i hope many other scholars will follow in that uh, line but nevertheless as i said it is especially commendable because as i said you will rarely find uh, archaeological evidence at the starting point like for example what archaeological evidence will you find in europe that the europeans went to america migrated to america you will find archaeological evidence of people who went to america then came back bringing uh, say american artifacts american plants american animals with them but there are people who came back but if they had not come back what evidence would there have been so you see it is very difficult and in the face of that the start that has been made by uh, alexander semenenko is very commendable 
she can't say actually you know it's even i've been from past few years i've been researching into you know, history and heritage of our country and particularly my focus area has been you know the jaina history and heritage uh, jaina and dashramana now yeah. obviously this particular subject of aryan invasion theory keeps coming up and they have been you know so i've been going through the details what i want to share with you and probably you know then you can respond to it the more back we are actually gone to the jaina heritage or the alten you know the other term for jaina heritage was is the shraman heritage so in the shramana heritage few thousand years before what is actually being claimed as per the shastra and as per all the evidence that somewhere in you know if we can go to the harappan era there was a big you know attack on the shramana tradition and there was a big decline of shramana tradition to the current stage right we are now that particular destruction actually led to uh, you can say how should i say for example if you go to the entire southern part you will find thousands and thousands of jaina heritage all across the south india it's there all across the india particularly in the you know the dakshin bharat but somewhere you will find that the population the quantity and the followers of shramana tradition in south they actually call it samana is hardly there only karnataka can boast of of a sizable number of you know the jains elsewhere in tamil nadu in kerala and the entire dakshin bharat you won't find jains but you will find the jaina heritage in huge quantity and in jaina heritage we call them you know the dravidian architecture that's a term which is actually used in you know the jain shastra now i'm not so i'm not using the word rn invasion even in the chat box i have written a particular shlok which is used in all the vedic even in hindu even in jain we use a particular shlok to call the you know the puja start karte hain that time that shlok is there and even there also the term arya is there but that arya meaning is something else so there was a big damage to the shraman tradition that is absolutely sure there is no doubt about it now who did it were they the the native the homegrown people and then they went outside or they came from outside settle here i'm not going to term them anything but what my research is reflecting is that something happened destruction absolutely happened a lot of these people who were following shramana tradition they went all across the country okay and that time the geographical area of the bharat was very big you already aware of it so this is way that they so this particular you know like the sunoli excavation which came up so there it came that something happened and lot of shamanic tradition were harmed during that particular in that particular stage so something happened now who did it so that's still you know i'm i'm still researching is still exploring into that subject so this is what i actually wanted to share see what he is asking uh, all about shramana tradition and history and all all that is actually all uh, not pertaining to the vedic culture because it is completely devoted to the east and as i have pointed out most most historian would say this is all post vedic culture which developed in the east but i have pointed out that it is not all these the vedic culture was the culture of the purus but to the east were the ishwakus and others and they also had their own culture and jain and buddhist traditions go back probably as far back 
I don't mean starting with the Buddha, but whatever traditions were carried on by the Buddha and by Mahavir, they go back much back uh, further back into the past, probably as far back as the Vedic period. But they have no connection with the Vedic period directly. They are the culture of the East. Like even in the uh, Vedic uh, literature, you will see that uh, the culture was more, you know, uh, ritual and poetry and that sort of thing. Philosophy had a very small play, uh, play part in Vedic culture, and it comes to a peak during the Upanishadic period, where there were all kinds of philosophical discussions and all. And they took place in the East, in Bihar and Eastern UP. If you see, like in the court of King Janaka, people are discussing things, etc. So you see, what we see is that different parts of India contributed in different ways to Indian culture. So while we got the Vedic culture from the West, uh, Punjab and Northwest, and uh, Haryana and Western Uttar Pradesh. But in the East, you had this philosophical culture. So you see Buddhism, Jainism, Charvaka, or Upanishadic philosophy. All the you know philosophical streams were from the East, and they are as old as the Vedic. Only they entered into the literary field after the Vedas. It's like you know. The Andamanese languages have been there since sixty thousand years, but the first written record of it is when some British uh, scholars noted it down in a book. So you can't say Andamanese language came into existence when that book was written. So Jainism, Jain, uh, these Eastern traditions were also there all the time. Only they were recorded at a later date after the Vedic. Namaste, Shrikant sir. My question is: uh, in colonial times. Uh, Aryan invasion theory or all Aryan invasion debate is linked with uh, uh, racism, like racist theory, all kind of. But after World uh, World War Two, the racist stories, all type of this racist thing ended. But now in current times, this uh, AIT debate, all AIT or Aryan invasion debate is linked with uh, the genetics, the haplographs, and these things and these things. Uh, do you find any parallel between colonial times? Racism uh, theories about AIT and current uh, genetics studies with linked with uh, AIT. Well, see, as Conrad has pointed out many times, the earliest theory of Aryan origin was the in, out of India theory. That is before this thought, thought of this Tepes, Tepes, and all those other theories. They are the, uh, the European scholars believed that India was the homeland. Later, it shifted westward. So you see, there are things which are repeating itself now, but with different uh, connotations. Like uh, first they used to discuss about Aryans being pure, like you know, blonde Aryans with blue eyes and tall, with uh, dolichocephalic heads and that sort of thing. But uh, Max Miller completely rejected this. He said Aryan is only about language and only about language and nothing else, nothing about blood, bones, hair, eyes, etc. Unfortunately. Now that the Aryan invasion theory has lost ground in the fields of textual analysis, linguistic argument, and archaeology, so now they are trying to revive that uh, you know genetic, uh, racial kind of in very very much modern terms, which they will say has nothing to do with what the earlier racists used to talk about. But ultimately, it is it boils down to that, unfortunately. And it again, they forget what Max Miller had pointed out that it is a question of language, not of uh, any kind of racial or uh, you know 
एथनिक एलिमेंट फिजिकल एलिमेंट 